This episode of Long Reads is brought to you by our comrades at Haymarket Books. One Haymarket title you might enjoy is the new expanded edition of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamata Taylor. Taylor places the Black Lives Matter movement in the context of a long historical struggle against racism in the US. You can find From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation at haymarketbooks.org where readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. It's now 10 years since Britain's Home Secretary, Theresa May, announced the so-called hostile environment. May's aggressive immigration policy led to the Windrush scandal, with dozens of people unlawfully deported from Britain to countries they had left as children. But official hostility to immigrants and refugees goes back long before May became a Minister of the Crown. And the current British government of Boris Johnson and Priti Patel is pushing the envelope even further. Our guest today for a conversation about the politics of immigration in modern Britain is Maya Goodfellow. She's an academic and the author of Hostile Environment, how immigrants became scapegoats. One of the standard themes of the discourse around immigration in Britain is that it's a very new phenomenon. How would you categorise and periodise the different forms and stages in which people have actually come from other countries to live in Britain? Yeah, I think it's a, a good question. And I suppose like the the most important thing or obvious thing to say is that like world history generally British history is one of movement there isn't really like a bounded British history in the way that we often think about it and so you can sort of like chart this history the Runnymede Trust has a website called Our Migration Story that I think quite nicely sort of periodizes in a way that people can understand and they sort of talk you through you know you have when the Romans invaded already there were lots of cultures and languages in Britain like very very diverse within England um, rather and if you look at the Romans themselves we see people from all over the Roman Empire. So that means that very early on in the first century, Britain's population includes people from North Africa, Syria, the Balkans. And you can sort of chart, I suppose, different people coming from different parts around the world. You have later in the 1500s, from the 1500s onward, really, Romani people coming, Huguenots. Then you have in the 1800s, people from parts of the empire coming. So British colonial sailors coming from places like... India, you obviously have people coming from Ireland. And then you could also say that from the 1900s, you can sort of see changes in who was coming and that you'd have Jewish people fleeing pogroms and increasingly people coming from colonies and former colonies. But I suppose the thing to say is that it has always been this history of movement from different parts of the world. And I think it can be sort of difficult. I mean, we can periodize it, but we can sometimes flatten exactly the complexity of it. And I think one way of conceiving of thinking about periodization, at least in more recent history, like which really speaks to some of the contemporary debates, I think, is to not just look at people who are moving here, which has been a theme for a very long time, as I've, I've just sort of suggested, but to think about the different laws that have been introduced, different forms of sort of state bordering and the different debates that have come with that. So when Jewish people and many seafarers were coming from places like Malaysia in the early 1900s, you had these very restrictive laws being introduced. And when you had people coming from the colonies and former colonies, again, you have another slate of restrictive laws being introduced. And we sort of see this at different times in more recent British history. And I think that's one way to sort of begin to grasp that there's long been this history of movement. There's long been this history of like sort of state response that is restrictive. But because obviously that there's a risk that I then present a really bleak picture. And in a lot of ways, there are there is a real bleakness and violence to this story. There is also like resistance to that. So I think when we look at this British history we think we can think of it as part of a world history that does see this kind of state oppression, but also sees people responding to and resisting that. During the post-war decades, how did the British state distinguish between immigration from the so-called white Commonwealth on the one hand, countries like Canada or Australia, and from the rest of its former colonies on the other? 
Yeah, I mean, essentially, we can, I think we'll talk about in a moment, there were really a raft of measures that marked um, some some groups out as being able to move here and like actually encouraged and wanted and others is not. And this was really based along the lines of race. So people were sort of constructed, if you like, as threatening. And this sort of really took the form like, of, of two sort of broad arguments that overlap with one another and, you know, ca- carry in within them all kinds of complexity. But on the one hand, there was this idea that certain people were like going to be an economic threat, like whether an economic drain or weren't going to do the work in the right way, or were going to come and sort of take from the British state. So there's long been this, this idea that, I mean, obviously connected up with empire and sort of colonial um, narratives of Britain is benevolent and so one argument really was that in particular people who were like racialized as other would be this economic threat but then there was also this idea of certain groups and this this sort of shifts over time in terms of who's singled out who's marked out as but these groups are, as cultural threats it's this idea that certain people are going to come to Britain and they're going to un- undermine Britain culturally and so there's this sort of argument that people from the so-called white commonwealth had cultural similarities with British people that meant that they wouldn't unsettle or destabilize what it meant to be British and obviously there's there's severe problems with this kind of argument not least that what what do we mean when we talk about culture is it really a static thing so we know that these these arguments are, are racist arguments but they are arguments that in different ways persist now and so I think one of the things to say now is that even then this this cult idea of culture, aesthetic British culture, wasn't borne out by um, what happened historically. And there's a really good quote from Stuart Hall, the um, like cultural theorist, which I'm going to, this isn't a direct, I'm going to maybe butcher it a bit, but, you know, he says, what does anyone know about an a English person except they can't get through the day without a cup of tea? Where is tea grown? There aren't no tea plantations in England. Tea is grown in Ceylon, Sri Lanka. Uh, India that is the outside history that is inside the history of the English and I always think about that when I think about those arguments about about culture because I think they really tell us exactly what is going on in that moment. What are the main landmarks in the history of laws that have been passed to restrict immigration to Britain since the 1960s? Yes there are a number of different laws I think that we have to understand to sort of see where the debate was going and see what was being done to people and so the one that is often looked to is the the big shift is the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act and so these laws were really all about doing what we've just spoken about about sort of separating out people from the so-called white commonwealth and people from colonies and former colonies who were being racialized as threats and so the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act really made it more difficult for people that we would might we might now call people of colour to come to Britain. And so before the 1962 Act, you could move from a colony or former colony because of the way that empire worked, and that was sort of put into law through the 1948 British Nationality Act. But after this act was passed, the 1962 Act, if your passport was issued under the authority of a colonial government, you needed an employment voucher from the British government to come and live in this country. And because of the very specific nature of the act, it really only affected certain people. So specifically people coming from countries like Pakistan, India, and so really this was racially encoded. And prior to this, governments had made it more difficult for people that they considered racially undesirable to come to to Britain. So they did things like intervening um, to increase the rate of boat tickets but this was like one of the first times in like the modern history, and obviously you have a longer history, the early 1900s of immigration laws that were um, largely about stopping poor people and Jewish people from coming to Britain. So there was sort of anti-Semitism laced into those laws. This was like the sort of more recent, I suppose, articulation and a slightly different articulation of this. And so from then you do see more and more laws being passed. So th- this was sort of like, a, there was a lot of debate prior to it. And this sort of like, in a way, seems to have kind of opened up the possibility to legislate in this way. And so that was a conservative government that passed that. And it was initially opposed by the Labour Party for a variety of different reasons. But then you have in 1968, the Commonwealth Immigration Act, and it's quite complicated, exactly the history of that it's to do with changes in what was going on in, in Kenya at the time but essentially 
more and more people, people who had moved to Kenya from South Asia, then moving, wanting to move to Britain. And what the 1968 Act did is it made it more difficult for those people to come here because the government, the Labour government panicked and wanted to stop them from, them from coming. And so they really rushed through this act, which basically meant that any citizen of Britain or the colonies was subject to immigration controls unless they had one parent or grandparent born, adopted, naturalised or registered in Britain as a citizen of Britain or its colonies. So this, again, was racially encoded. Then you have the 1971 Immigration Act, which the groundwork for that was laid by the Labour Party, but it was passed by a Conservative government. It ended the idea of Commonwealth subjects or citizens. So that was replaced with this distinction between people who were patriots and where they didn't carry any restrictions and non patriot which did. And patriots were people who were born or naturalised in the UK or who had one parent or grandparent born or naturalised in the UK. The Conservative politician Enoch Powell triggered a massive controversy in 1968 when he predicted that immigration would lead to rivers of blood. Powell's notorious speech was long on rhetoric, but short on facts. In 1970, Peter Cook starred in a satirical movie about British politics called The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. The film included a scathing parody of Powell's invective. Nobody could accuse me of being a racialist. (laughs) But when I hear stories as well authenticated as this, which I heard from a very close friend of a constituent who had been talking to somebody in a pub who had heard from an extremely reliable source that a fragile old lady of 92 had been locked in a lavatory by a group of 10 immigrants who proceeded to poke at her with sharpened broomsticks for a period of 14 hours whilst they chanted anti-white slogans and finally forced her to use a newspaper photograph of Mr. Enoch Powell in a way that I'd rather not go into here. When I hear stories like that, I wonder, are we mad to allow in this country fragile old ladies to be ruthlessly poked by blacks? In a 1976 interview, Powell called for a set of government policies that would pressure immigrants to leave the country. He also wanted to see that pressure applied to people who were born in Britain. To where would you repatriate those immigrants who were born here? To where they wanted to go. In most cases, they are the citizens of their countries of origin, although born in this country. 40% of the total immigrant population, I think, were born in this country. Yes, you and a high proportion of those are citizens under, of their countries of origin, under the laws of their countries of origin. So I'm dealing with the question of a a legal difficulty in that there isn't a legal home any longer. Now, you describe it as their home in your speech. Yes, of course it is. They've never Uh, seen it, of course. Well, uh, an Englishman born to missionaries in China is still an Englishman. We're not, and, talking and about, if, we're not talking about those numbers. We're talking about a lot of people, Mr. Powell. Quite so. But, uh, but uh, we are talking about them individually. Now, how would you deprive these people born here of their British citizenship? Their British I passport? don't know what you mean by British citizenship. Well, they believe that they're Many, British, you see, and uh, they're born here, and therefore they would, uh, they would argue that this is their home. Well, they don't argue that this is their home. The majority of them regard India or Jamaica or wherever it may be as their home. It is simply unrealistic to pretend that these people born here in increasing the massive numbers regard this country as their home. Because they are born in this territory, our law, which has a feudal basis, treats them as it were as the product of the soil and appropriates them. They are born within the dominion. But in the eyes of the law of their own countries, they are citizens of a countries of origin. They hold a passport, and, Mr. And it, Powell, which says British subject and citizen of the United Kingdom and Colonies. And they also have the right to hold a passport of their country of origin. But they hold a British passport. No, it depends which passport they apply for. Well, they, they hold a British passport. They are entitled to a British passport. But in the run-up to the 1979 general election, the Tory leader Margaret Thatcher offered an early version of the argument that immigration itself is responsible for racism. People are really rather afraid that this country might be rather swamped by people with a different culture. 
And you know, the British character has done so much for democracy, for law, and done so much throughout the world, that if there's any fear that it might be swamped, people are going to react and be rather hostile to those coming in. So if you want good race relations, you've got to allay people's fears on numbers. That's one thing that's driving some people to the National Front. They don't agree with the objectives of the National Front, but they say that at least they're talking about some of the problems. Then you have the 1981 British Nationality Act. And what that did is it meant that if you were born in this country, you weren't automatically entitled to citizenship. At least one of your parents had to be born or settled in the UK. And so we can see the sort of the ongoing, I mean, this still has ongoing impacts for people who are born in Britain um, who aren't able to access British citizenship. And obviously you have these these raft of laws, but there are other things going on too, certain norms or attempts to, to make it more difficult for people to come here or to sort of police people. So you have both Labour and Conservative governments carrying out state virginity tests on women coming from South Asia. And then you sort of, if you fast forward to even more recent history, you see 1990s really intensifying from the 1990s onwards successive asylum laws um you know we could talk about that a bit later but that make it more difficult for people to claim asylum here make it more difficult for people who are here putting in their asylum claim to survive basically so you have this long history of of race sort of shaping british immigration law in all kinds of distinct ways and i would just say even from that very sort of like broad overview that i've attempted to give you can begin to see just how complex it is, just how difficult it is to navigate a lot of this this law and a lot of people that you speak to, lawyers and immigration lawyers included, you know, struggle to really get their heads around the, what are often changing regulations that are built on very, very like decades of this very, very racialized policies. How did immigrant communities from South Asia and the Caribbean in particular begin to organise in response to the racism and discrimination that they encountered in Britain? And what impact did they have on British politics by doing so? Yeah, I mean, there's throughout like history, there's been really vibrant and like, often sustained and like powerful anti-racist movements and so you can even go back as, as like, I mean, you can go back further than this as well, I'm sure. But, you know, in the early 1900s, you saw people organising against racism and xenophobia within Britain. And you you saw people organising against the racism that they were experiencing, but also the racism that they saw maybe their loved ones, you know, husbands, whoever exp- experiencing as well. But if you look at, like, again, like 60s onwards, you see so so much resistance to like almost whenever there is the government doing things like the things that I've just talked about there is pushback and there is resistance and so one example of that is there were really important coalition of different groups campaigning against the virginity testing that I mentioned so it saw organizations like the Indian Workers Association the organization of women of African and Asian descent South Old Black Sisters coming together to really campaign against what the government was doing you have organizations like the Asian Youth League you have protests against racial violence you have people organizing within the Labour Party as well as outside of it and so that community solidarity I think is incredibly important and I think you can make an argument that some of the things that did happen like the eventual enactment of the 1965 Race Relations Act which was eventually strengthened uh, years later which essentially outlawed racial discrimination in key areas like housing, employment, education. There are a lot of, you know, there are criticisms to be made of of these laws and people have made criticisms of them, but there is an argument to be made that, that these shifts wouldn't have been possible without this kind of resistance, without this attempt to hold like the state to some kind of account and to get the state to act in the interests of people who were being racially discriminated against. There are lots of grassroots movements where people are doing things and you find this like when you look at the the history of these things campaigning against outside detention centers providing support for people um like I said campaigning against all kinds of racial violence and think that is a really important counterweight to 
lots of the things that are being done in government, but also on the streets right, by people who are opposing immigration. So you do have this important resistance to that. In 1978, PEMS TV reported on the racist violence against Bengali immigrants in East London. The victims accused the police of doing nothing to protect them from the far-right National Front. What the youth are experiencing is that if there is a meeting or demonstration of the Bengali people, say numbering 30 or 40 people, the police comes to know about that. But few weeks before, when about 200 National Front people marched and smashed everything in Brooklyn, and we just wonder how come the police didn't know about that. And I don't believe it for a moment the police did not know about it. It takes time to mobilize 200 people. I believe the police knew what was going to happen on that Sunday, and if they wanted to, they could have stopped it. They could have stopped them coming to Brick Lane. We want some action, firm action. If it's a question of self-defense, yes, we've got to defend ourselves. It may be necessary if the police are not prepared to enforce the law as it exists for the black people, in, uh, to protect them as much as they protect anybody else. That's the dilemma, yeah. I mean... We have been so long, we have been begging to the police, to the Home Secretary, to the Home Office and everybody that stop it. We are insecure, we don't feel safe on the street or at home. And nothing has been done. And if the police can't stop it, we have to stop it ourselves. And that's it. That has very serious implications because it has serious implications about who enforces law, for who. And if black people are going to enforce their own laws for their own protection, I think that is a very, very serious situation. and I don't, I don't think it's something that we very lightly um, say yes to. But it may come to that. The violence can never be one-sided. You see, that's the problem. Everybody's ignoring it. I mean, if somebody faces violence, the only way to stop it is counter-violence. And the existence of National Front, only, I mean, if it is, if, if it is not stopped, it will be a violent society. The British culture will be changed. The Blair-Brown Labour government is often remembered by its critics and its defenders alike as having been quite a liberal, cosmopolitan government which saw immigration as a positive thing and encouraged it. But what was its actual record in this field? Yeah, I think New Labour is a really important... um, Like, it's an important part of this history to really understand because there is an argument that's very widely believed that essentially says, oh, the reason why we saw an increase in anti-immigration feeling amongst the British population, the reason why we saw things like the rise of Nigel Farage and UKIP, one core part of that was because the Labour Party were too open, sort of too liberal, let too many people in. I'm saying that with like quotation marks. And it's actually really incredibly complicated what they did, in part because they did sort of make so many changes to the system that can be really difficult to track. And one thing they did is they did sort of switch the messaging and change policy from the years preceding. So they talked a lot about immigration being good for the economy. That is something they said. They said they they were sort of happy with people being able to come to the country. They they changed the immigration system in a number of ways. And they said, you know, as long as immigration is good for the economy, that we're, we're happy for it. But there's like two things that go with that. I think we really have to understand because that's often presented as them being liberal. And, you know, from people who would criticise them being too liberal, people who would support them being like liberal in a positive way, an open way. There is a third way to understand that is one, they said this this about immigration being good for the economy without even trying to engage in the whole racialized debate that existed before. So they didn't, it's not like they tried to dismantle that whole, all the arguments about immigration being a problem. Like they would say it can be good for the economy and as long as it's good for the economy, we're fine with it. But they would also overseeing quite authoritarian measures if we think like around the Islamophobia that was laced into a lot of their policies. And so that didn't, they never really tried to make a concerted effort to sort of shift the narrative in a way that would speak to some of the underlying thoughts on immigration that had, like happened in the years prior. In the following clip, journalist Peter Oborn talks about the relationship between New Labour and Rupert Murdoch's Sun newspaper in a campaign to vilify asylum seekers. The collusion between media and government stretches down to a very, very detailed and precise level. Let me give you One example. Several years ago, the Sun newspaper launched a campaign against asylum seekers. 
didn't like them very much. He felt that they were abusing the system. That apparently was very critical of the government. And they launched their campaign, and at the end of that campaign, uh, they had an interview with the then Home Secretary, David Blunkett, who made certain concessions, said the Sun was right about asylum seekers, and so the Sun could claim some form of victory. I got hold of the Downing Street grid, in which they laid out in advance future events. What was fascinating was that the Downing Street grid, prepared in advance of the Sun campaign, had the Sun campaign on it down to the day when David Blunkett would give his interview. So what the Sun did, which appeared to Sun readers to be a spontaneous attack on government policy and asylum seekers, was actually an orchestrated performance with Downing Street, which, which excluded Sun readers. And it's all a performance. It's all choreographed. And it's quite disturbing, I think. But the other thing is that for them, as with like a lot of their, their approach, it was really about having what they, you know, quote unquote, flexible workforce. So this, what this meant is bringing in people who they would perhaps call low skilled, which is a really, um, I think, a stigmatizing term and really unhelpful. But they would do so on kind of temporariness. So wanting people to come in, do the work, not necessarily stay long term, not necessarily have support that they might need so there was a kind of like disposability to that I would argue and it is really difficult to track these sort of shifts because of the number of changes that were made but from what we can tell that was one of the things that was going on but at the same time as that so I think that the immigration model itself was really flawed and it's one of the reasons why we should really be careful when we talk about immigration not just talking about people as if they're like almost commodities they're good for the economy as opposed to thinking about them being people but at the same time as all of this they were almost immediately speaking and then at, like producing policy that was incredibly strict on asylum so speaking in very very harsh terms on asylum so they did things like stop people who were waiting on their asylum application to be processed from being able to work and um, people who applied for asylum in country their access to state support was limited to the people to people who could prove that they had submitted that application as soon as reasonably practicable I mean you know you can sort of see the problems with that already there was a real talk about it was really under new labor that this idea of like bogus asylum seekers genuine refugees was popularized and it's borne out in the evidence is that towards the end of new labor there's evidence to suggest that like the number of people who had been refused asylum their levels of destitution had really increased and the number of people who had to sleep on the streets had also significantly increased. And so there is this big, big, as well as what I would see as a really flawed and problematic approach to immigration more broadly, um, there is this very, very toxic narrative and policies on asylum. And obviously we can see that not everyone separates these two things out. And so even if you wanted to defend the immigration messaging and policy, the anti-asylum narrative certainly fueled and helped to construct public dislike of immigration. And obviously, I mean, crucially meant that people were in a worse situation. People who were claim, like coming to apply for asylum, people who were refugees, experienced all kinds of awful things. And like the, the whole push around so-called illegal immigration, which is like a, it, such a toxic term, is bound up with all of that. And so that, to me, is like the way to understand some of the main sort of approaches of the new Labour government. Yarlswood, Britain's most notorious and secretive immigration centre. In 2001, the Blair government opened Yarlswood Detention Centre. Channel 4 News went undercover in the centre in 2015. They filmed security guards referring to detainees as animals and urging their colleagues to use violence against them. Humiliation is just one of the abiding memories of Yarlswood for Esther Azigwe, released at the end of January. In Yarlswood, I did feel like I was an animal. You know, every morning they come to count you. In the evening also they count you. So it's just like animals that they do count to make sure that they are at the right number, not human beings. And then I, I did feel also that I was a prisoner. Like 85% of the women at Yarlswood, Esther, who's from Ghana, 
says she was a victim of sexual violence before fleeing to the UK. Already struggling with depression in Yarlswood, she said her mental health deteriorated badly. When guards said they were about to remove her by force, she said she was desperate. They started running and then they started chasing me. And then she was like, Esther, please, we need to go. And then I was like, I'm not going. I don't want to go. And then she said, you need to go. And then I, I stood by the steps. I said, if you come near me, I will jump. And then she still came. And then I said, one more step, I will jump. And then she still tried to come in. And then I jumped. Yeah. The detention of pregnant women is one of the most controversial aspects of life at Yarlswood. They're only supposed to be held in exceptional circumstances. During our investigation, we knew of six pregnant women at the centre. While guards are not allowed to use any force against these women, there is increasing concern about the practice of splitting them from their partners to send the men back. Yeah. It's Friday night and an alarm has been sounded. There's um, a move on, yeah? Yeah. And I don't know how to get the cameras onto the legals. Yeah, because there's going to be families to the legals. Guards are attempting to split a Sri Lankan couple. Watching from the control room, it becomes clear the officers on the ground are struggling to contain the man. Second response, second response, immigration room one. I say again, second response, immigration group one. The man is eventually separated from his pregnant partner and can be seen on the monitor being escorted away by officers. There are strict protocols around dealing with pregnant women and no evidence they've been broken here. But for many campaigners, the question is whether pregnant women should be detained at all. You touch on the point there that when New Labour politicians and people of similar ideological bents did try to make some kind of positive case for immigration, they often tended to do so in very technocratic terms by saying immigration is good for the economy as a whole. But that may not impress people very much if they don't think that the economy is good for them. So being more specific about it, you know, what is the hard evidence away from all the rhetoric and the alarmist newspaper headlines about the impact of immigration on labor markets, on public services and on other economic issues that have been discussed in such alarmist terms? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot to think about when we think about this this subject and I guess the starting point of that that sort of, you know, what you said it's like a technocratic term is like it's very extractive. So it sort of frames people if, you know, if you're useful to the needs of capital, like, OK, you can come in as soon as you're not. What happens to you if you're not at all? Then what you're not allowed allowed in. And so there's like already there's like a real problem with this. I mean, the evidence doesn't suggest that like why why would you separate off people who are like who happen to come from a different country who are described as immigrants from like the rest of the population so really if we look at the evidence that there is um like the narrative is that you could be someone who migrates here and you take a job as a nurse and in doing so you are taking a job from a British person but at the same time you are also supposedly the person that is at the front of the queue for the NHS putting this so-called pressure on the NHS so the immigrant is the person who is both taking a job and taking benefits at the same time and like we just know that I don't want to sort of there's like a risk with going down the route of saying you know we know that people work we know that people are necessary for the NHS and I mean yeah there's there really is a truth for that from its very founding an institution like the NHS is been people from all over the world have been working in it but that I don't think should be the grounds on which we say they should be able to move able to settle in Britain but there's a broader question here I suppose which is about the way that the economy functions and the way that the labour market functions and all the blame is placed at the door a lot of the blame is placed at the door the feet of people who might have migrated to Britain but we know that like the British labour market is is structured in such a way as to expose certain people certain groups certain people in certain lines of work to, to more vulnerability more disposability very poor terms and so this is like the way that capitalism is working as opposed to the fact that people are moving and so if some people who are coming into the country are being paid poorly and on worse terms that's not their fault that is the fault of the economic model and so I think that's like the to say that it is migration that is causing that is to overlook the much bigger sort of structural factors at play you know that is the sort of 
I can see that as a sort of scapegoating. But I think there's another part to that discussion, which is that not only do people see that, you know, they say that immigration is good or bad for the economy, but there is, as I mentioned before, this sort of cultural argument that is at play too. And I think these two things kind of overlap in certain ways. So this idea that certain people are culturally distinct from Britain. And so what you sort of have bubbling under the surface of this, is this idea that certain groups of people who are migrating to Britain are culturally distinct and therefore are more likely to say and um, be dishonest and claim benefits or come to take because it's like this idea that it's an innateness like an innate greed or an innate desire to take from the supposedly generous British state and I think we can read that I mean we can read that as a form of racialization because it's saying that there is something innate inherent in people that they are going to come and behave in a particular way and therefore do like cause harm and damage to Britain and yeah, obviously, these are arguments that I just completely reject. And if you talk to so many, like many people who move here, they do, like people do, they're working multiple jobs, some people. And so like, we need to recognise that that is happening. Like, it's not their fault that that's happening. It's the fault of the economic model that we have. Launching his party's election campaign in 2015, the UKIP leader, Nigel Farage, blamed immigrants for every conceivable problem from wage compression to hospital waiting times. What we want to do is to change our relationship with the European Union, take back control of our borders, and put in place a positive immigration policy, one that the people of Britain would overwhelmingly support, and by that I mean we want an Australian-style point system to decide who comes to live, work, and settle in this country. We're asking, we're asking to do what normal countries all over the world do. You know, we've gone from about 30,000 people a year net to the figures that we saw last week of 300,000. And there are very good reasons why the people of this country are now deeply unhappy with that situation. The impact on schools, the current accident and emergency crisis that we've seen this winter in our hospitals, the changes that have happened within our communities. And also, just think on this. In what is already the most crowded country in Europe, the fact that we have to build one new dwelling every seven minutes just to cope with current rates of immigration. And above all, I think what's been felt by millions of ordinary, decent working families is wage compression, an unlimited supply of unskilled labour that has made for many people the minimum wage, in effect, the maximum wage. Farage would use the same talking points the following year when he campaigned for Britain to leave the European Union. What was the relationship between the politics surrounding immigration in Britain and the Leave campaign in the Brexit referendum of 2016? Yeah, I mean, a lot has been written and talked about in relation to the Leave campaign. And I think one of the most well-known symbols from that Leave campaign, which was the, you know, the big billboard of people crossing a border or people coming into Europe who were seeking asylum, like largely brown people it depicted, really sort of encapsulates the way that the Leave campaign tapped into an anti-immigration messaging that was incredibly racialized. If you look at the literature that they put out, look at some of the core arguments we made, it was this idea that Turkey in particular was a threat, the threat of Turkey joining the EU, this very, very Islamophobic narrative about people from Turkey being like predisposed to like committing crimes and being like again that cultural threat that I mentioned before and so that really played on I think existing narratives in Britain about who's a threat and this idea that you'd be able to like supposedly control your borders and the sad irony of that is that although part of that debate was about people coming from Europe and free movement and in particular people from Eastern Europe and there's like all kinds of problems with that like if we look back at New Labour, that was like a big toxic part of the debate. Actually, we know that Europe has incredibly 
restrictive border regime already. And so they were sort of playing on this idea that Europe doesn't and Britain would be able to like not only stop people from Europe coming, but importantly, like for the Leave campaign and certain like in the way that politicians, certain politicians frame it, stop people coming who were who were Muslims or perceived to be Muslims. And that was like a really core part of the campaign and the debate. But it's also there is a lot of time and analysis has sort of gone into looking at that. And I think, you know, that necessarily so, but it's also important that we look at this Remain campaign, if we look at some of the people who were involved in that, and obviously with these things, it's diverse actors. It's not, you you can't say that it's it's what, like there are multiple messages going on as well, I suppose. But one of the leading people involved in that Remain campaign, David Cameron, who's like the architect of the whole thing, the whole referendum, was complicit in reproducing those very narratives. And so a key part of the British negotiating strategy prior to Brexit in terms of renegotiating with the EU in the attempt to persuade the British public not to vote to leave was to say, you know, we're going to be harsher on people coming from Europe in all X, Y, and Z way. And so that tells us that, yeah, absolutely look at the racialized, the racist racialized nature of some of the arguments related to leave, but we also should be putting under the sort of microscope, if you like, or the magnifying glass, whatever, however you want to, describe it we should also be putting the remain campaign and some of those ideas about migration being a problem under the we should be putting that under similar scrutiny because that is part of the problem too how have the left-wing currents in british politics chiefly in the labor party and in the british trade union movement responded to the debate over immigration as it's come to be such a dominant theme in political discourse yeah, I mean, it's very mixed. So there's a really long history, you know, I like mentioned briefly before about like the anti-racist movements that have long been um, pushing back and resisting organising in Britain. And there is a like long history outside of the Labour Party. Importantly, you know, that, that history really matters too, but also within within the Labour Party, within parts of the trade union movement against anti-immigration sentiment, against racism. Like, it's really important to not erase the work done by by those people. But it's also, I think, important to not present this sort of, like, idealised version of Labour history in Britain, or the Labour movement in Britain, rather. Because if you look at the debates, if you look at the history, it, key moments... For a very, very long time, parts of the trade union movement, large parts of the Labour Party have been like complicit in reproducing anti-immigration sentiment and also advocating for measures that would harm people who want to migrate here. And so there's this sort of idea of the ideal or the main worker being a white man. And that obviously doesn't bear true in terms of like who's been doing what they're as like to make an obvious point the working class is multiracial, has multinational, like many nationalities, people are born all over the world and part of the working class. And one of the, I suppose, one of the, in more recent times, this has been like, a, this has been the case, there's a very good book by an academic called Satnam Verdi, which sort of looks at this, this, this history much better than I can explain. But I suppose in like more recent times, the way the debate, this debate has gone and sort of been structured and again it's like you know full of tensions and disagreements and people resisting and nuance but like there is a sort of underlying argument in certain quarters that people are concerned about immigration in particular people who labor need to win the votes of in particular some of the people who uh, like a certain MPs maybe representing their constituency or, or, or whatever and that Labour should respond and it is migration that is the problem it is people who are moving here who are like un- so-called undercutting wages and that has been a sort of strand within within parts of the left and I think that that is yeah it's, it's a real problem because it should be that you know people who move here it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what they're where, where they're from in the world if they are part of the working class they're part of the working class and that I think is being a 
a true flaw in some of the ways that immigration has been spoken about and sort of acted on, like, if you like, um, including on the on the left. In April of this year, Boris Johnson and his Home Secretary Priti Patel announced a plan to process asylum seekers in Rwanda. They also launched a bitter attack on lawyers who attempted to stop deportations. Channel 4 News carried this report on the plan. Launching the government's scheme yesterday, the Prime Minister took aim at lawyers like Stuart Luke. We have such a formidable army of politically motivated lawyers who for years have made it their business to thwart removals and frustrate the government. Mr Luke has spent the last 15 years representing asylum seekers. 70% of them have been granted leave to remain. Are you a politically motivated lawyer? My focus as a lawyer is to ensure that the rule of law is uh, upheld. I do have concerns about uh, moving very vulnerable asylum seekers halfway across the world uh, for processing. It's unclear how they will be entitled to be represented, uh, how they will be able to access services and how they will be treated in a country which has not the best in terms of a human rights record. The world turned upside down for Imran when he realised he was gay. Living in Pakistan, he felt persecuted and feared for his life. So he fled to the UK and was granted indefinite leave to remain. So what if he'd been sent to Rwanda instead? I would feel very terrified, very isolated, very lonely. What would you be terrified of? Terrified about uh, the circumstances in Rwanda because I don't know their culture, their society and a strange place for me. So I won't be tolerated to go there. You were granted asylum on the basis that you're gay and it would be unsafe to go home, back home to Pakistan. Do you feel it would be safe to be in Rwanda as a gay man? I don't think so it will be safe because I've been told the people LGBT, they're, they're not safe. What would you say is novel about the approach that is being taken by this Conservative government against the long-term backdrop of immigration and asylum policy over the last few decades? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a really hard question. And I think I'm sure there are people who have a better sense of this than me. But I, I think that what we have arguably seen... So we do have this like longer history of anti-asylum policy that is important context. And we shouldn't suggest that this is like such a massive break, but we can say that it is a shift in certain ways. And I think there isn't a sort of feeling of like authoritarianism of, of pushing even further with like the bounds of what is possible with this, with these asylum policies. And, you know, it sort of remains to be seen what will happen with that Rwanda policy, like, Already, there's going to be much pushback, many legal challenges, which I think the government will sort of relish, but are very, very necessary, given how draconian the policy is. But it, I think it is about sending this message that Britain is sort of closed, if you like. And even if we think about the shift, there's a kind of tension within the Conservative Party at times, I think, between people who are sort of like pro-immigration for economy purposes, like for business, like if you think about like the CBI and whatnot, um, and then people who want this even more restrictive approach. And obviously, as I've said about New Labour, there's a real problem with the supposedly more open approach, which isn't actually open because of bringing people into work in the economy because it's based on all kinds of um, conditionalities. People aren't treated well. But there's a tension between these this different thinking, I think, within the Conservative Party. And what it seems to be, and again, this ongoing like developments and let's see what happens, I suppose, but it seems to be that they do want to, they will let some people in for like to be used in this kind of disposable way, but it does seem like they want fewer people to be able to come to the country, whether that is a question of like being able to exploit people abroad in particular ways to sort of continue to cater to like the kind of economy that they want to um, sustain it really remains to be seen, but I think there is this sort of like streak of authoritarianism that is obviously has existed at other points in, in British history too, but seems to be like manifesting in the, this refugee and asylum policy in particular ways. But I do think it's hard, like as it continues to develop, like depends what does happen with the Rwanda policy, I think. In the wake of Brexit, especially, many liberals in Britain have tended to see the country as being an outlier 
in European politics and having an especially backward and xenophobic political culture. But how much of the British debate do you think we can see mirrored in other West European countries? Yeah, I think that this is, you know, I sort of alluded to it earlier a bit in relation to Brexit. This is like really being a I think is a real major flaw in the debate around Brexit, you know, like sort of whatever you side you you fall on, people sort of suggest that Britain has become more hostile, like with Brexit. And evidently, you know, what I've just said about the Conservative Party and like if we look at the, the changes to the system, like we can see that this is the case, but we also do need to think about what came before. And actually we should ask ourselves, what about European border policy like how can we say that there was you know there was a an idea right in the aftermath of the referendum that that leaving the EU was going to turn Britain into a place it had never been before and whilst there may be some truth to that it's going to turn Britain into it's a different country in distinct in important ways but the suggestion was that it was going to become hostile when it before it'd been quite open well Maybe it was open in terms of like free movement. And even then there was all kinds of conditionalities attached to that. So let's not like suggest that everyone was treated really well coming from different parts of Europe. But there was a very, very repressive border regime within Europe. And so we we, we can see, we can see not only like narratives, similar narratives, if we think about Islamophobic narratives around refugees, we saw in the so-called refugee crisis of 2015, that was like across Europe, we saw these kinds of narratives about people who were coming from Syria and other countries being a cultural threat, right? That's like very popular argument in Britain. Nigel Farage used the clone attacks as a sort of like example of that. It's how some politicians in Germany have spoken about it. But also materially, so if we think about Frontex, the money put into that, we think about the pushbacks from the Italian coast and elsewhere. We think about the outsourced borders. We think about things like the British government, as with Europe, has these funds where part of their aid money is about bordering. Right. So the the EU trust fund for Africa, you have like similar stuff in Britain. So there is obviously a specificity in different countries that in different countries and we should understand the specificities. But it's not to say that, you know, Britain is somehow this massive, you know, as you described it, 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 an outlier. Like, yes, there are specific things that are being done here and that we should be mindful of and care about and resist. But it's also true that in large parts of Europe, that there are also incredibly repressive border policies and really toxic debates about immigration and asylum. Many thanks to Maya Goodfellow for that account of immigration and state policy in Britain. You can read more about this subject in her book Hostile Environments, which is published by Verso. 